here we are here on this Easter Sunday, April the 17th um, of 2022. A lot has happened over the past uh, few years, and we find ourselves even this year in a very interesting place as a world. And so this Easter um, is interesting, much like the last few has been when you just read the news and the headlines. But I believe in the midst of all of the craziness um, that God has uh, a word of encouragement for us here today. And there's a reason why we do this, the reason why we celebrate, the reason why we put all this together, the reason why um, there are churches all around the world who are celebrating. Um, and I hope that you are encouraged as we go through this this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, um, just a handful of verses here, uh, says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day and for um, our time here in the word. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to have understanding here this morning and ultimately that your truth would um, impact us and your spirit would guide us to uh, not just here, but to leave this place changed and living out the calling that you have for our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's interesting. We watched this video just a few minutes ago with these kids telling the Easter story. What's it all about? Um, we're here in the Word. We're gathered together for this Easter sun Sunday. Um, and it's interesting because uh, this issue of Jesus, uh, it's something that impacts us culturally and that all of us at some point in time have to deal with uh, what is being taught what is being uh, shared uh, as truth. And ultimately, everything really hinges on the reliability of this story. Everything really hinges on whether or not this is actually true. You know, if this is true, then it has application for our life. If it's not true, uh, then you kind of move on. I remember... Years ago, Grace and I were on a date. Uh, we had, well, it was early on in marriage, and she wanted to go watch uh, that Disney remakes, uh, live action remake of Cinderella. And um, I was not excited about it, but I took one for the team because she had just watched a series of movies where violence took place and, uh, you know, some bunch of comic book stuff, and she was along for the ride. And so I was like, yeah, I'll take this L. Uh, and watch Cinderella. And if you like Cinderella, good for you. It's not my thing. Um, it, was it was nice. It was fine uh, for Cinderella. Um, one of the better Disney live-action remakes that they've done. Uh, but it was no Jungle Book um, or something like that. So the point is, we're sitting in the middle of Star Cinema Grill off Dulles and Highway 6. And while watching this movie, uh, we're like halfway into the movie. Uh, the fire alarm starts to go off. 
And, you know, at first it was kind of weird. And then, like, it kind of stopped. And so people were like, do we sit? Do we go? Was that an accident? And sure enough, the staff comes out and they're like, you got to get out of here. Um, the fire alarm just went off. And so everyone exits out of the building. Um, and, you know, apparently there was a real fire that took place in the building. And everybody got tickets to watch whatever they're watching again, which means I got to sit through Cinderella, or at least the first half of it, twice. Uh, because we did make good and come back and watch that. But it's interesting, as we came out of the theater, this siren comes on, and there's ultimately, you know, like, is there a fire or is there not? If there's not a fire, then everybody gets to go back into the building. If there is a fire, all shows for the day are canceled, and uh, you got to get out of here and go home or find something else to do, but you can't stay in here. And it all hinges on whether or not this is actually true. And in the case of us, as we talk about the Easter story and what Paul is ultimately talking about in this passage, all of this hinges on whether or not this is true. There is no doubt um, for the vast majority of historians, scholars, that Jesus actually existed that he was a person that was born. There is no debate on whether or not Herod uh, wa uh, was in charge at the time that he was born some 2,000 years ago. In fact, on uh, archaeologist years ago found uh, his seal, and one of the things that it says on his seal of his list of accomplishments was the censuses that he took. Anybody who has read and familiar with the Jesus story at his birth know that the census was what led him to ultimately be born in Bethlehem. Most historians don't doubt that, like, he had disciples. And most historians don't, don't uh, uh, argue that the disciples began to teach that Jesus like his disciples were taught that he rose from the dead. And the fundamental question for us, however improbable it might seem, because I don't know about you, I've been alive for 36, going on 37 years uh, of my life, and generally speaking, the people that I know are born, they live, and they die. That's typically the way that things go. And then there's this, you know, like, does somebody actually rise from the dead? I don't know about you, but that's, you know, uh, we're here celebrating this concept, but it was something that terrified me as a kid. Uh, my first funeral that I remember as a child, I, I remember uh, it was one of my good friend's dad, and I'm sitting there at the funeral, and this is a Haitian funeral, so um, it's uh, very expressive. Uh, we are professional grievers and mourners, and so uh, you, it's just something to the point that I know this. Every single time I meet Haitians that are, like, new to the city, uh, one of the first things that they always say is, like, do you know when there's, like, a funeral coming? Because I, I need to go to one of those. And, like, there's, like, this weird uh, uh, cathartic, you know, uh, comfort that comes from uh, Haitians and the way that we grieve. And if you don't believe me, go to YouTube, type Haitian funeral, and just start watching videos. Uh, this is a thing. So I sell this to say I'm at this funeral. My friend's dad has just passed away. And when everybody uh, goes and looks at the body at the very end of the funeral before they open up the casket, the worst case scenario for me and the reason why I chose not to get up, I, like six-year-old, seven-year-old me was like crying, was because I was convinced that if I walked by there, my friend's dad would pop back out and that was terrifying. 
And the reality is for most of us is that we know people to be born, to live, and to die. And this interesting thing comes place is that the whole thing, not just Paul's message, but the whole point of Christianity rests on this claim of truth, that Jesus lived, died, but like came back with the sequel and rose again. And for all the things that I'll say here today, all of it hinges on whether or not this is true. Why do we believe what we believe? And all this to set up before we get into the word here this morning. But why is all of this important? We have these eyewitnesses. The Bible, contrary to popular belief or a misunderstanding, I think sometimes when people look at the Bible, and we'll just deal with the New Testament, oftentimes people say, well, the New Testament is just something that some people like wrote and changed over time, uh, over the course of human history. So there's no way that we can trust that the things that we're reading right now are the things that they actually said and wrote. And while that is at times a very convincing uh, uh, claim, it, 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 it's only convincing because most people don't even understand how we got the Bible. We did not just have something that was made up over times. We have uh, manuscripts, not originals. We don't have originals of most historical documents. Uh, what we typically have are copies of those originals, and we understand when those things were written. And so typically, the closer to when something was written, we see copies being made that lets us know that something is more accurate or more reliable. Believe it or not, oftentimes with some of the great philosophers like Aristotle and, uh, 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 and Plato and guys like that, uh, they lived, they spoke, and folks didn't start writing down the things that they said until five, six hundred years after they died, a thousand years after they died, and we rarely ever question whether or not those things are accurate. But what we actually have, a very clear record in the New Testament, is that eyewitnesses began writing down the things that they saw about Jesus during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who could verify, corroborate, or deny the things that were being said. And the earliest manuscripts that we have are within 50 or so years of when the last apostle died. We know for a fact that they were writing these things down within the first 20 years from when Jesus lived, died, and they started sharing. I want you to think about that. It's incredible. One of the things that we see, and I'm trying to go through all of this, but uh, a quick verse to remind you, 2 Peter 1.16 is important because what Peter says is, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We didn't just make this thing up. We were there. He was there. I, we were all there. We all saw it and we heard it. And what do we have here with the disciples? Eyewitnesses making testimonies in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that however improbable it was, the person that they'd followed for three years died. They knew that he died. They knew where he was buried. And three days later, he got up from the grave and was talking to them. And at some point, it says that some 500 people all saw the same thing at one time. 
Some people have written that off and said, well, maybe it was a mass hallucination. I'm not going to go through all the psychology of that, but I'll just tell you right now, there's no such thing as mass hallucinations. Furthermore, typically when people talk about mass hallucinations, they're talking about like one sense. The problem with Jesus and his resurrection is that it's multiple senses being engaged. They saw him, they heard him, they touched him, they could smell him, they describe all of these things. There's nothing in the realm of science that says that there are A, mass hallucinations, and B, that there could be mass hallucinations that engage multiple senses. Not only that, we know that they began to die for this truth. It'd be one thing if they made it up. But after the first guy got stoned to death, not a great way to go, by the way, they could have recanted. And oftentimes they were presented with the option, like, if you will just say that you lied, you made it up, it's not true, you can die. And they were like, no, you can crucify me like you crucified Jesus. You can be like Peter who said that he wasn't worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So flip me upside down and do it. You can be tied to horses like some of, they were, some of them were and send the horses in opposite directions. They were beheaded. They were boiled alive. They were sent to the Colosseum, fed to lions and killed by gladiators. Nero, who was the, the, the emperor at the time in Rome, who was per responsible for uh, most likely when both Paul and Peter died, was notoriously known for taking horse carriage rides at night and using Christians as human torches to light the road for him as he went. They could have recanted at any point in time, but they were resolute. No, the person that was dead is alive. I want you to think about that. And Paul becomes an interesting person in this story because Paul was somebody who did not believe, who was there when they stoned and killed the first martyr in Stephen. He held the robes of the people that hurled rocks at him to death. And he was going from town to town arresting Christians. And yet this man, and by the way, Paul is the, the thing that most secular historians that like say that this didn't happen, they have a hard time having an answer for Paul. Because how is it that a guy who didn't walk with Jesus, who hated Christians, who was persecuting them, arresting them, and having them executed, have an experience that turned his life around and said, nope, the guy that I said was dead, and these guys that I thought were heretics, actually, that whole thing is true. And then he went and died just like they did. And so, like, everything hinges on whether or not we believe these things are true. And whether or not you've ever seen somebody rise from the dead again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what all of this hinges upon. And while I often talk to people about faith and things like that, I often tell them I don't believe in Jesus simply because, like, of all spiritual things. And in fact, that's not even the reason why the disciples make the claim. They say it because they are resolute that it happened. And the truth for us is that we have to deal with these evidences as well. I could go on forever on all of this stuff, but that's actually the purpose of this sermon per se. And I want us to get into this. But I believe this, and I'll, I'll, I'll be very brief here this morning. I believe this. One, I believe firmly that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, however improbable it is. And I think that that truth, if he is who he said he was, and he did what he said he did, 
has massive implications for our life. It changes the way that we treat each other. It changes what the makeup and mission and vision of what we do with our, our life. Uh, it changes how I act as a son, as a husband, as a father. It changes how I am as a friend. It changes how I respond to everything that's happening in the world. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all, all lives matter, and everything in between. It affects how I process the wars and hunger and human trafficking and all the things that are going on in this world. And this is what I'll say. <coughs> if there's one thing you take away from me today is that the message of Christ brings purpose to pain. This life is filled with pain. My life has been filled with pain, ups and downs, hurt, and everything in between. But Jesus ultimately brings purpose to the pain. The promise of Christ is not that your life will not be filled with pain, will not be filled with hardship. But the promise of Christ and the implications of what Jesus did is that there's purpose to pain. No pain, no gain. I'll be honest, and I'll uh, get, get, get into our, our just a handful of points here in a second, but uh, for a few months, i say about six months, I worked in the cafe at Lifetime Fitness. And uh, people came in, people came out, they did things. Uh, met a couple athletes, pretending like we were all best friends. Jorge over here knows for a fact. Yeah, every single time, I, who was it? Uh, Richard Lewis would come in, uh, and he would just ask for like a cup of water. Uh, I would re, I would change the story and just be like, yeah. So my boy Richard, you know, he he came in. He was like, dude, you're the coolest person. Come to my house. I'm like, oh, dude, I'm busy, but maybe you can uh, uh, get on my schedule. I say this kind of stuff all the time, uh, and so it it was crazy. But this is what I I know to be true. After walking through the gym there. Uh, on, day in and day out is that uh, when people work out, they don't do it because it's quote-unquote fun. In fact, there are very few times when I'm walking through and people are pumping iron and doing things that the look on their face is like filled with joy. There's a lot of grunting, a lot of uh, wheezing and things like that, but there's purpose to what they're going through. It is painful, it's tiring, it's exhausted. They come into the cafe, uh, I need something, give me, uh, give me my pre-workout this. Then they come out afterwards, they're like, oh, I'm starving, or I need my, to replenish all the, the nutrients, the loss and all that kind of stuff. Everything goes working out. Uh, clearly, I work out often. Um, so uh, my vocabulary is lacking right here. But the point is, is that like, they, they, but they went through what they went through because there was purpose behind the pain. And so let's look at this very quickly, the work of Christ and ultimately the purpose that it has in our life. First of all, the work of Christ brings clarity to the call. It brings clarity to our calling. In this passage that we looked at in verse 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. It ultimately gives us new perspective we get a new perspective, and it helps us to understand the warnings, the instruction, all the things that we have been given over the years, or all the things that we're learning as we're reading in the Bible and spending time in Bible study and hanging around. Like all that stuff is that Jesus and what he has done gives us a new perspective and an understanding as to why these things are important. Last year, literally about this time, I was on vacation in Destin, Florida. Uh, my wife's parents were celebrating their 45 year wedding 
anniversary. They did this whole vow renewal thing on the beach, those white sand beaches of Destin, Florida. It was uh, awesome, and we were there. And so we had this ceremony on the beach, and Grace's brothers and I all helped out because we're all pastors. Um, and, and so, you know, like we're doing various things, and I did the music, and uh, Sammy, like uh, the middle brother, actually led the, the ceremony and vows. It was this whole thing. Uh, and afterwards, we went to this steakhouse to go celebrate and spend all this money that I didn't have to because it was part of the anniversary thing. So Grace's parents paid for it. Praise God. Um, and so we're at this bougie steakhouse. And at some point, Jaden, my oldest, is like, Dad, I need to go to the restroom. And so we go to the restroom. Now, keep in mind, I had been on my, uh, my son for a long time. Uh, he was five at the time. Uh, since as long as he was potty trained and we were going to bathrooms, I have this whole thing where I'm like, hey, buddy, uh, even after you wash your hands, uh, stop touching doorknobs because people don't wash their hands and it's disgusting. And so you're just going to undo what you just did with soap by uh, touching uh, a nasty doorknob. Now, we walk into this particular bathroom at this super expensive steakhouse uh, and we go to the bathroom. And the first thing that you do, you know, when you walk into the bathroom, I'm going to be gross a little bit here. Um, but you, when you walk in the bathroom and there's clearly somebody putting in work, you know, um, and the evidence is there. The aroma of the bathroom has been intoxicated with this stench. And I remember it was so bad that Jaden at five years old looks at me and is like, ooh. And I was like, yeah, man, somebody is uh, sick. Don't know what they ate. But uh, that is not natural. That is not, that is not a normal uh, movement that's taking place. And so I go to this stall and I open the door and that dude that's putting in work is sitting right there on the stall. Lock the door, man. You know, like lock the door. So I'm like, oh, uh, my bad. And I lock the door or I shut the door. And then uh, we go to the next stall over. Jaden goes, then I go. Uh, uh, we start washing our hands and like not even done like lathering up. This guy walks out of the stall and walks straight out of the bathroom. Oh my gosh, he didn't wash his hands. Oh my gosh, it was so disgusting. And I was like, uh. And here's the great part. I didn't even have to tell Jaden to grab extra paper towels to grab the doorknob. He did it himself. And it cracked me up because as soon as we walk out of the bathroom, Jaden looks at me and he goes, he didn't wash his hands. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I know, I know, I know, man. It's, it's disgusting. He's like, but why, 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 Dad, if you're doing that, would you not wash your hands? I was like, I don't know. He's going to go eat steak now. And it's like, yeah, I know. And so then, and then Jaden just has this moment, and he just stares at me again. He stops walking. He's like, and why didn't he lock the door? <laughs> I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know why he didn't lock the door. It's like, like, does he want people to walk in there? I was like, I don't know, but it was gross. Uh, and so we went through this whole thing. Now, I say all this to say is that after seeing all of that, Jaden uh, understood why we had been giving him this warning this whole time. And now without fail, Jaden just, I've passed my germophobeness on to him. He doesn't just touch doorknobs even in bathrooms. He's like, uh, I need some extra paper because you don't know. And every time I walk with him, or often now, Jaden's like, remember that time that dude didn't wash his hands after blowing the place up? That was disgusting. Uh, I was like, I know. I know it is, son. And that's why we don't do what? Just touch doorknobs. That's right. That's right. And so like, we go through this whole thing. There's purpose behind what we're doing. And ultimately, we get a new perspective. Just like my son got a new ex perspective, he experienced the depravity and the foolishness of, of man and how disgusting people can be. And it gave him an, a new perspective and understanding of what life was about. 
And in the same way, Paul here is talking about how he rejoices in suffering. He has a new perspective because of he has encountered the truth of Christ. And the suffering that he ultimately goes through in life produces something in him. And so uh, in the same way that ultimately Jesus went through suffering on the cross for our sins, and he overcame that, we now, when we put our faith in him, overcome as well. And not just that, he gives us spiritual gifts. And the reason why he did all that was for the church, which isn't the building, but the people. And what we go through in suffering in life as well is ultimately for the body. And that's not hard for us to understand because all of us expect when uh, we see a woman in labor and here in SETI West, we just had two babies in our church, you know, Mila and Levi, and they're super cute. One of them's mine, the other one's not, but the babies are super cute. And all the parents will tell you when they had babies that there's suffering involved. But there's not a single parent who would like regrets going through what it is to birth a child. You see the kid. It's like all the pain and suffering goes out the window, and next thing you know, the same woman that was like screaming bloody murder and cursing everybody and trying to choke the guy, you did this to me, and everything under the sun. Next thing you know, the baby is born, and just tears start flowing, and they're smelling the head because it's just something, oh my God, and next thing you know, like just love takes place, this tenderness, and why? Because the suffering is worth it when we understand the prize. So the first thing is that the work of Christ brings clarity to the call. The second thing, and I'll move quickly, is that the work of Christ can't be faked within the life of a person. It can't be faked. You either know Christ or you don't. You've either put your faith in him or you haven't. And you will ultimately grow in your spiritual maturity or you won't. But there's no faking it. There's no uh, pretending. There's no any of these things. And it ultimately will be manifested down the road. I think what we see in Paul as he goes on in verse 25, I won't read it, but he talks about this calling that he has and the authority of stewardship that he has. And ultimately, uh, uh, he says it's according to the stewardship of God, not to himself. He realizes that his calling isn't his, it's God's and his ability to be successful in what God has called him to isn't in his creativity, isn't in his ingenuity, isn't in him being a prolific public speaker or being an incredible fundraiser for his missionary journeys. It is in God who has called him. And I think we need to understand this because oftentimes we've got this idea, uh, and it's really tough for us in this generation with the way that social media plays itself out. If I've got the perfect filter or, you know, I get the perfect shot and make my coffee look just like that with my journal over here, it's going to make me look like this. If I pick the perfect song or I get the perfect pose and I'm like, "Mm, didn't like that, delete, let me try it again, take it again, take it again, portrait mode this, and we try to curate our lives to look absolutely perfect that some Somehow that will make it work. But ultimately, you either know Christ or you don't. And if Christ is alive in your life, it's not about how skilled you are. By the way, that's encouraging. It's not about how gifted you are. It's about whether or not you know him and you are willing to be used. It reminds me of that parable of Jesus and the two fish and five loaves. Some of you have heard this from me before. But the point of the two fish and five loaves where Jesus feeds 5,000, which, by the way, it's not a crazy miracle to believe. I mean, once you accept, I mean, 
I say this, when you think about the origins of this world, you got two ways of explaining this. Either there was absolutely nothing and nothing on its own combusted in some primordial ooze into everything that we see, or there was nothing and the eternal God like created things. Now, personally, for a lot of reasons, logical, I think that this one is harder to believe than this one. Um, uh, uh, and, you, you know, but, but wherever you are in that. But once you believe that there's a God who created everything from nothing, uh, some fish and five loaves being multiplied, I mean, that, that's not really that big a deal. Um, so so I'm, 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 I, I say all this to say there are two fish and five loaves, and all of these people are fed from two fish and five loaves. The whole point of the story is that on your best day, if you've done all the preparation, if you've studied everything, if you've tried your hardest and curated the image, all that it is, your very best is two fish and five loaves and is insufficient to meet the needs that the world has. It is only God that brings the increase. And Paul says, like, the ministry that I have is to the stewardship of God. He's the one that's appointed me to where I am. He's the one that's doing everything. And it all hinges on my encounter with Christ and putting my faith in his resurrection at the cross. And so oftentimes we have a bad barometer of what it means to be spiritual, what it means to do right. We look at ourselves and we think that it's something that you can manufacture on your own. But I want to encourage you today. Being good in this world is not about you leaving this place and manufacturing goodness. Goodness can only come when you put your faith in him and what the scriptures say that he literally imputed goodness onto you. You were not good. He made you good. You were a sinner. He took that away and he put himself. And any goodness that you have is the goodness of Jesus imputed to you. And that ultimately can't be faked. You either know Christ, you've either put your faith in him, or you haven't. The last thing I'll say is this, is that the work of Christ is for everyone. It's for everyone. In verses 27 through 29, I'll read this briefly and then get into it. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this we, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I think that there is, in light of everything that has happened the last few years, I've said this before, I'll say it again, all of the suffering, all of the division, all of the racial tensions and everything that exists in our world, what people ultimately want is Jesus. There's not an act of Congress that can bring peace to the nations. I know this, and you should know this, because it's already illegal to discriminate in this country. It's already illegal to deny people of their civil rights. Like when somebody gets killed, it's not like we're saying, like, we need a new law on the books that shows that it's against the law to murder. And just in case, uh, since it, it was a problem, they passed a Civil Rights Act of 1964. It says you can't just murder people. You also can't deny them of the basic rights that people have. And yet, here we are 
in 2022 and there are still people that are racist. And I, newsflash, it's not just white people. I had a black friend of mine who's a pastor. We got into this massive argument years ago that broke our friendship because he saw that I was married to a Mexican woman and said that if black was good enough for you, me to be born from, then black is good enough for me to be married. And how dare you insult the goodness and the blackness of your mother by marrying somebody who wasn't black. That's what we call racism, friends. White people in America don't have, uh, uh, have not cornered the market on that. That is a human problem. The propensity of people to think that they are better than other people by virtue of what? Superficial characteristics and attributes. When in reality, it's all of us that have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world, John 3.16 tells us, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The world doesn't need another law passed. The world doesn't need another edict. The world doesn't need another movement and protest in the streets. And I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad. I'm just saying the sum total of those things is that if you think that your hope in equality is in us collectively coming together and give hugs, we already wrote the song. We are the world. We are the children. We did all that kind of stuff. It's been done before. And guess what it did? Absolutely nothing. Because laws can't change people's hearts. Only Jesus can. And the good thing for us is that it was his design, will, and pleasure that all of us, regardless of what we look like, too tall, too small, too black, too light, too everything in between, too rich, too poor, that all of us would experience his love and peace through humbling ourselves and believing that Jesus is Lord. It's so what we need is to go back to the roots, at the heart of the gospel. The gospel started off with, a bunch of, and the work of Christ began with Jews, who themselves were kind of passively racist, actively racist. In fact, the fundamental problem that threatens the church, as you read through the book of Acts, is racism. We're God's chosen race, God's chosen people, and everybody else who isn't Jewish is less than us. And the next thing you knew, the Holy Spirit would fall on a Roman, which, by the way, were the occupiers. Cornelius, who's working in the Roman Empire, is occupying the people of God. He is the oppressor. Then his house gets saved. It's like, oh, well, wait a minute. That's, that's a little awkward. Next thing you know, the, the Holy Spirit falls on people in Samaria. It's like, oh, the half-breeds that sold out? Dang it. I guess maybe the Spirit's for them. And it all culminates in the Jerusalem conference somewhere around Acts chapter 14 or 15 where Paul comes and he's been preaching the gospel to Gentiles, which basically means not Jews. And all of a sudden, he, they're hearing the testimony of people who they believed were too gross and unworthy of God's goodness, experiencing his goodness. And they're like, well, I guess maybe uh, Gentiles get the Holy Spirit too. The gospel and his work, of the work of Christ is for everyone. And the things that we're struggling with today are not new. It's just echoes of the same problems that humanity has always had. And the answer is still the same because the root problem for us is sin. We all have fallen short of, of perfection. We all have fallen short of God's 
standard. There's not a person in this room that is perfect. Your sin isn't against the person that you smack in the face, you cuss out, or whatever it is. It's against God. Because when you do those things and we treat people like trash, those people are made in the image of God. This is established after the flood when God tells Noah, uh, if somebody kills somebody, then take their life because they just took somebody out made in the image of God. By the way, just to bring things full circle, do you know why black lives matter? Because we're made in the image of God. That's why it matters. By the way, apart from that, none of this stuff even really matters. Apart from that, it's just natural selection and survival of the fittest. What brings us value and weight is that we are image bearers of God. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you and to rise again so that if you believe in him, you can have life. And by the way, that eternal life is not a life that begins when you die. It's now. The entire theme of the book of John is the kingdom of God is now. You can experience joy now. You can experience peace now. You can experience hope now. You can experience life now. You don't have to wait till you're dead and on in the grave to experience life. No, life is today. He's right now bringing life to people. He took somebody like me growing up in a single parent home with no father, and he's made me a father today. Even though I never saw what a good father was, I can be a good father, not because of anything that was in me, but because I have a heavenly father who loves me and gives me life now. He can take people who've known nothing but brokenness and destructive cycles and bring them victory and prosperity over all of those things, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. And then when we die, we get to be with him forever. The work of Christ brings purpose to our pain. A lot of us are trying to seek out answers, and I'll close with this. A lot of us are trying to seek out answers, try to figure things out. We've gone through ups and downs, hardships, We're starting in the wrong place. Before you go and try to work out all the things in life and figure out why the world is the way that it is, the first thing that you have to ask yourself is, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? If you believe that he is Lord, then it will have implications for how you answer all of those questions. I'm not saying that those aren't difficult conversations to have. I'm just saying that faith in Jesus is the beginning place to understanding the pain of this world and the pain of life and the purpose behind these things. And I believe that that is available for us today. That's why we celebrate what we celebrate here. Let's pray.